If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hi guys, welcome to the show. I have a great guest here today. I'm speaking with Todd Tresseter. Now, Todd pulled off what most of us can only dream of achieving. From starting at 23 years old, zero, he successfully retired after working for 12 years. So by the age of 35, he retired from active work life and transitioned into becoming a real estate investor. He built a real estate business that had over 100 assets in his portfolio. He sold it off right before the financial crisis hit, meaning he was fully protected. He didn't lose any money on all that. And now he runs the website called financialmentor.com, a world-building portal where he educates people on how to build long-term wealth the right way. So he's come on the show to teach us a little bit about wealth building, investing, and just the mindset of building an independent wealth portfolio. So Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show, Chi. All right, so Todd, let's let's get down to it. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, you know, I cut my teeth in the hedge fund business. That's where I built my wealth. That would kind of be deemed the rocket science of the investment business. I was what's known as a quantitative investor. So I spent 12 years researching quantitative investment strategies. So it's all statistically and mathematically driven. Uh-huh. I basically spent 12 years kind of proving what works and what doesn't in the financial markets. Um, really got down to the science of investing, if you will. Uh, we sold that company. One of the dumber decisions I've ever made in life was selling the hedge fund. Um, I fumbled around for a few years, um, did a lot of international travel, um, and launched a couple businesses, failed with a few businesses, and then uh, slowly settled into the business you talked about now, which is financialmentor.com. And the focus there is about education, but it's 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 not just financial education because there's you know thousands of websites that do that. This is advanced financial education, so it's the kind of next step, next level stuff. Once you're past the savings and frugality and all the other common issues that people are dealing with, and you want to learn about advanced retirement planning, advanced investment strategy, it's really next level stuff um, based on my experience of what works, what doesn't, why. Okay, great. Now, you mentioned something here and you ghosted over it real quick. So, why did you say it was dumb to sell the hedge fund business? And um, you did the hedge fund business, basically, this was sometime in the 80s to the 90s. So, um, I'm sure back then it was way different. Well, I got into it because I've always been fascinated by skill-based investment strategies. You know, you can't really do that in the context of normal financial planning, you know, they follow generally, com- you know, basic asset allocation models. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were developing, you know, statistical risk management models and uh, asset selection models, all kinds of things that they say can't be done, but it actually does work. And so um, that was what I was fascinated with. That's what I wanted to get into. Had a common friend, developed a friendship. He and I partnered up. We built it. It was very successful. The reason it was one of the dumbest, it was, it was really smart from a personal standpoint, right? I, I couldn't have moved on with my life the way I did if I had um, the hedge fund portfolio that I still had to manage. Now I could have hired staff. I mean, the thing was immensely profitable. I could have hired staff. I could have cash flowed it. Um, There's all kinds of things I could have done with it rather than just sell off the asset. Um, But I was really focused on freedom. I had 
always wanted to travel the world, you know, live out of a backpack and vagabond around. Mm. And I just felt too restricted while owning the business. And had I not sold the business, I wouldn't have built Financial Mentor because I wouldn't have needed to. And it, it's a tremendous amount of work to build a financial education business. And it's not terribly lucrative. So if you have great cash flow coming off another business and you have a reason not to, I, I probably wouldn't have done it. So from a personal standpoint, the most rewarding thing I could have done was sell it. From a financial standpoint, it was obviously stupid because, you know, I got rid of a massive cash flow stream and it was only, a, you know, a small multiple of earnings. So, you know, that cash flow stream would have been continuing to this day and had grown tremendously, mm-hmm. you know. And so to kill, you know, basically I killed the cow for a few pounds of hamburger rather than enjoying the sweet milk of success for decades, you know. Wow, that must have really been tough. Well, it's a, it's not tough. Again, it you know you've got this interplay between life decisions and financial decisions. Yeah. You know, I have enough. So yeah. from a financial standpoint, even though it was absolutely stupid, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. It's well, okay. Yeah. You know, I had the luxury of that. And from a life decision standpoint, I, really, I had to do it. And okay. so that's why I did do it. Okay. Now, what, apart from that being a, a little bit of a regret, so tell us a little bit about you know. Something dumb that you did when you were trading, like how did you learn trading? Did you ever make like a very terrible mistake as a trader? Oh yeah, my first investment was a hundred percent loss. Well, um, I was how much? Yeah, my well, my first job out of college was I was working at Hewlett Packard. I worked there for about six months before I got fired, and uh, wow. and that's a whole other story in itself. And um, there was a company. You know, it was in the pink sheets, NASDAQ pink sheets, mm-hmm. that that was an upstart and they were buying HP mainframes. And I'm not going to throw names around or anything. Um, but basically, you know, I knew the guys in the credit department, they were issuing the credit on these machines. And it was like this big growth story and we were expecting this thing to go nuts. Well, I had been saving to go back to business school, right? I was going to go get my MBA for some crazy reason. And and so um, I've been saving for it. So I had this nice little nest egg already, and I put it all into this stock. You know, I don't remember what it was. It was a few thousand dollars, whatever. And and uh, and it. I remember at first I only bought a certain amount of it, and then it started going down. So I did the classic investor mistake, and I averaged down, and I bought more of it. And at some point, I put pretty much everything I had into it as I kept averaging down, and it kept going down until it finally went to zero. And so that was my first lesson in investing. It's real easy to lose a lot of money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, risk, man- risk management is absolutely key. And it was taught to me in my very first investment. Okay. So you learned the lesson of risk manage- management. Now, how did you apply that lesson of risk management going forward to everything else you've done in your career? From yeah, before I answer that question, first okay. of all, I have a po- I have a post on my site that goes in detail about the lessons I learned okay. and every mistake I made in that investment. It's called How My Worst Investment Made Me Wealthy. Oh, okay. um, and it goes through all the lessons you can learn from your mistakes. And so the whole idea is okay. to, you know, everybody's going to make mistakes, right? And yeah. so what you want to do is you want to turn those mistakes around, get the lessons right, not compound the mistakes, not repeat them, and just get better and better with time, which is what I did. And so that post is kind of a demonstration of that where I went through and I dissected all my mistakes and it's called how my worst investment made me wealthy cool and i'll link to that in the show notes very cool stuff so you so you sold your business you took some time off i assume to travel see the world and then how did you fall into real estate 
Yeah, well, my asset, my investment skills were primarily focused on capital growth. Yeah. Right? They weren't on cash flow. So once I sold the business, I needed to convert the assets from uh, a growth focus to uh, cash flow, but still maintain wealth um, in net of inflation, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to grow, I had to grow my capital net of inflation, but I also had to cash flow and provide uh, income to live off of. And so I started focusing on uh, investment real estate and reallocating over investment real estate. So that's what drove the decision is just different investment needs. Uh, once I had, you know, burned the cash flow stream from the business. Mm, okay. And you build that portfolio up. I read somewhere it was up to over a hundred assets before you sold off. Right? I had, I, well, no, I, I had, um, I had 162 interest in. I didn't own them outright. I had, I had an interest in 162 apartment units. I had several houses, and I had a bunch of acreage, and I had a company that acquired properties through the tax lien system. Okay. So I had quite a bit going on in real estate at the time. Now, what did you see in the market at the time that gave you some level of alarm and concern? Yeah, so I started allocating real estate in '98, and so I was picking up properties where, you know, they weren't they weren't the greatest part. They were C-class properties. They were really designed for cash flow, as I said. And but I was picking up C-class properties. I was picking up for maybe, gosh, you know, thirty cents, twenty five cents on the dollar of new construction costs. Okay. Um, more like thirty cents on the dollar of new construction costs. Um, so they were really an extraordinary bargain, and they cash flowed really well from from the day you closed. Um, and so they they represented excellent value. So that was one of the motivations. Um, also, it was a grand adventure for me. I you know I love investing. I love figuring stuff out. And so it was a great adventure for me to go in and figure out the whole real estate investment side of the business. And so I dove. You know, I do what I always do. I just kind of deep dove into it a little on the obsessive compulsive side, right? And mm -hmm. so I'm diving into it and building the portfolio and it's growing nicely and business is growing nicely. And then around 2005, I started getting really uncomfortable. I had a couple things go on. One, um, I was getting offers on my properties that were about twice of what I felt they were worth. And I knew what they were really worth in terms of their cash flow value, right? There's three ways to value any asset. There's the greater fool theory, which is comparable sales, mm -hmm. which is how most real estate gets valued. That's not investment real estate. Then you've got replacement cost analysis, and then you've also got um, uh, income analysis. And in my opinion, income analysis is the most important because the real value of any asset is the discounted present value of its cash flows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew them from an income analysis standpoint what they were really worth. I also knew what they would cost to replace. Um, so I had a pretty good handle on what they were intrinsically worth, but the market was just really speculative in those days. Um, for anybody even looking at hindsight, but it was clear to me in, in real time as well. And, you know, I just kind of wrote it up, wrote it up, wrote it up, and I was fine with everything. But then I was starting to get offers over twice of what I felt they were worth. Um, and then I realized that I'd made some mistakes in my strategy, mm -hmm. that that um, there was things I didn't like about how I designed my portfolio. Uh, I didn't like owning out of town. There was a couple other things. I didn't feel that C-class properties was the right mix of properties for me. I'd made several mistakes because, again, it was my first pass at doing it. So I'd done a lot of things right. I, You know, it's kind of 80-20 rule. I'd done enough things right to do well, and I'd done a couple things that long-term I wasn't really satisfied with. So I had that kind of gnawing at me like, eh, I'm not really sure I like what I built here. And then 
I had, um, and then some things really bothered me about the market. I started having tenants leaving that didn't even qualify to rent from me for $600 a month. Uh, they had such horrible credit history, um, employment history, all these things. I was barely keep keeping them in the building because I just had to get tenants. I mean, you know, anybody could get a loan back then. If you could fog a mirror, you could get a loan. And I had tenants that didn't qualify to be with me, and they were getting $300,000 loans on homes down the street. Hmm. And I mean, they could barely make the rent payment at 600 a month. It was crazy. And I couldn't, you know, I just looked at that and said, you know, I don't know who else is going to, every, every asset. Okay. I got a backdate here a second. Okay. Um, you know, back then the general belief was real estate never goes down. That sounds foreign to people today because nobody would even utter the word since it's obviously stupid well, yeah. since we saw real estate well, fall precipitously. Yeah, so real estate, the way real estate works is a leverage play on inflation. That's why so many people build wealth through real estate. It's a great asset class, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But there are points at which it doesn't make sense, and it is very prone to declines during deflationary collapses, which is what we end up getting in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And those are generally associated with credit bubbles bursting, which is exactly what happened. And so we're rolling up into you know, 2005, 2006. I've got all these indications that this is turning into bubble territory. I mean, you know – like the tenant going out and buying a building, that's that's like, you know, the shoeshine boy giving you stock recommendations, right? Yeah. It's just it's every every client that came to me wanted to buy, get rich in property. Every coaching client that came to me, I mean, all the anecdotal evidence was there, right? And the valuations were absurd. And so I didn't know where the top was, but I just felt like the risk was to the downside, right? Yeah. And and so I just felt like, you know, it's time, I, it's not an appropriate time to pursue financial leverage, which is what real estate is when you use mortgage financing. And so I felt it was time to unwind the leverage. So I started unwinding. I first started pursuing it in 2005, didn't really hit full steam till about 2006 and was the only piece of real estate I owned at the by the time it all rolled off was, in 2007 was the home I live in. Um, I had sold everything, every last piece of investment property before the decline. And so anyway, that's that's kind of the story of it. So I'm sure by the time that happened and you had relinquished all those assets, people must have been looking at you like, man, you must be a genius, you know. You timed the market properly. Do you actually think, okay, and as much as you understood what was going on in terms of the fundamentals, do you think it's possible to um, time the market as is where? Because people from the outside looking in would have said you timed the market, whereas you just understood what the the fundamentals and the data was telling you and you read it appropriately. You're close. You're close. So everything I do, all investments are uh, run by expectancy analysis. Yeah. So most people aren't going to be familiar with that term. So let me simplify it for you. Um, most people are familiar with probability, right? The odds yeah. of something occurring. Well, expectancy is odds times payoff, right? So it's the probability of the occurrence times the payoff when it occurs. That's how money compounds. That's how the investment game works is it's expectancy, not probability. And that's one of the reasons it defies most people's intuition. Most people's intuition is because the way the markets work is there's what's called fat tail distributions. They usually occur during declines. The bulk of the fat tail distributions occur during declines. Well, since money compounds by expectancy, the fat tail, which is the large price moves, the large sudden price moves, they tend to occur during clients. Therefore, what happens is the most important data is the data most people tell you to ignore, which is the unusual large occurrences at the extremes. The black swans. Because that, 
yeah, that data is so important that it literally determines the entire outcome. It determines the the distribution, everything. Um, so, and that's that's an example of where m- most people get the. You know, you've probably all seen the ten best days, ten worst days. You know, where they tell you if you miss the ten best days of the stock market, you miss all the return. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You've probably seen that. Yeah. Those those are famous studies. All the people are doing is showing when they talk about that and they conclude that you should be a buy and holder. All they're doing is showing naivety for how the math really works. Um, what it's showing is that the fat tail distribution, those 10 most important days literally determine the entire distribution. They determine the entire outcome of the distribution. And that's a very different conclusion because, um, not coincidentally, both the most positive and the most negative, the preponderance of them, not every one of them, but you know, like eight out of 10 depends on the data sample you're looking at of the largest gains and the largest losses all occur in the depths of bear markets. And so it's a really different conclusion from how most people understand it once you understand how the data really works. And so I I wasn't making a magical market timing to connect it to your question. I wasn't making some magical market timing conclusion when I sold all my real estate. What I was doing was I was looking at risk reward analysis on the payoff side of the equation. Remember, it's uh, probability times payoff. Yeah. So I didn't know the exact timing when I made all these decisions, right? I was just making the decision based on the payoff mm-hmm. side of the equation. I felt that the payoff side of the equation was tilted to the downside. The risk exceeded the potential reward mm-hmm. because people were paying twice what the buildings were worth. It was an extreme premium over intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And and so all I did was sell you know, that extreme of overvaluation, but I never knew when it would decline. As it turned out, it was almost perfect timing. But I've done this three times now, and some of them have gone on for years, and some of them are almost perfect timing, right? I did it in the stock market in 98. That proved to be too early, but it was still correct. And I wrote a post on my website about the expectancy analysis of the bond market, and that was in 2013. And so it's it, the bond market still hasn't cracked yet, but yet the analysis is 100% accurate, and that is that there's no positive expectancy in the market net of inflation, so there's absolutely no reason to invest in that market, to put capital at risk in that market. It's an unfavorable risk-reward ratio. And see, that's all you need to know to make the decision. So now to go back to that time to talk about how people, you know, saying, oh, Todd's so brilliant. Actually, the opposite occurred. It's it's kind of interesting. Um, when I did that decision, again, you got to understand the context. The market was still going up. Yeah. And I sold into it. And I didn't just do a 1031 exchange, right? In the real estate world, what you do is you 1031 it and re-leverage up, right? Uh, oh, sorry. Which so could, case, you, could you explain what 1031 means for people that don't know? 1031 is a tax-free exchange. It's, okay. it's otherwise known as a Starker exchange if somebody wants to look it up or they okay. can look up 1031 exchange. It's a, it's a U.S. tax code that basically says you can pull the gains out of a property and reinvest them in another property without paying tax taxes, on it. Yeah. Yeah, so it allows you to do a tax-free exchange of properties. Most people, when they sell property, they re-leverage up, right? And they, so they do a 1031 exchange. They take the equity. They re-leverage up to bigger properties. I did the opposite. I deleveraged, right? I removed all financial leverage, and I paid taxes on all the gains. And I was roundly criticized at the time. Because remember, the belief at the time is real estate never goes down. How could I be so stupid as to pull the money out, pay the taxes on it, and not even be in the real estate market when it never goes down. And I lose all that money to taxes that could have been reinvested in more property. I mean, I was roundly criticized. People thought I was an idiot. Now, of course, in hindsight, the, the opposite is true. But that's because understanding this stuff 
is more complex. You can't do simplistic analysis like real estate never goes down. The, the, obviously, that's false now. People tend to oversimplify analysis. Like right now, the stock market is at record overvaluation. It's in the top, like, I don't know, 5% of historic valuations. The only times higher valuation now, depending on the exact valuation measure you use for the US stock market, is 1929 and 2000, which is like a who's who of the worst times to invest. Yeah. And if you go the next levels down in valuation, you've got the 87 crash, the 2007, 2000, or I'm sorry, the 2008, 2009 decline, you know, the 73, 74 decline. Again, a who's who of the worst times to crash weren't even as bad evaluations as you have today. On top of that, you've got historic low interest rates right now, right? So yeah. even in those worst times, the Fed still had gunpowder with interest rate decline. The, the, you know, there was interest rate movement that could occur. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting these historic overvaluations with historic low interest rates. And so I just read an analysis from a guy, very credible person, who said nonsense to all this valuation stuff we're at the beginning of a this I'm and I'm not advocating this right I want to be absolutely clear but this person's analysis was singular said it was going to be the best time to invest in 35 years believe it or not we we just come off a 35 year basic bull market of overvaluation saying it's the best time to invest in 35 years and it's all based on demographic analysis now I don't know about you but yes demographics play a role in how capital gets contributed to the markets and what creates buying and selling, you know, which ultimately determines price. But you can't do a singular analysis like that and ignore other valid indicators. And it just it blew my mind that somebody credible was actually doing that and committing it to paper. And so you have to be very careful how you look at these things. That really doesn't make sense if you think about it in a logical way. Right. Well, it's, it's common sense, yeah. right? It, it defies common sense, right? Because you've got prices determined by supply and demand for the yeah. asset. Yeah. Plain and simple. That's basic economics. And there's no way of overruling that. And so you've got a variety of factors that are going to impact supply and demand, of which one is demographics, right? That's one valid indicator. But there are a lot of other valid indicators, and you can look – and and you can see what has the highest causative value and correlation. There's a lot you can do to really break this thing down. But I mean, I see these guys do this stuff all the time. And the reason why is it sells. Yeah. It sells. Right? So and sometimes the tough decisions don't sell well. And like my real estate decision is a great example. Mm -hmm. Or the fact that I, you know, I went public in ninety-eight. You know, I sold my hedge fund in ninety-eight. And I went public and I started shifting to real estate as an alternative asset class. And I went public saying you know, stock market valuations are getting to a point that I felt it was hard to manage one day risk, you know, because again, you got to go back. I had, I had managed the one day risk in the 87 crash. I was in cash for the 87 crash. So I knew, um, the issues of one day risk mm -hmm. that they can be prevalent. And I felt that one day risk because of the record overvaluations we we're heading into from 98 to 2000, I felt it was getting extraordinary. And so you know, I'd gone public with that. And again, I was way too early. The internet bubble had a long ways to go still, right? Yeah. And the same thing could have happened in the real estate call, just as it has actually happened in the bond call, right? But it never matters because once the expectancy analysis is clear, it doesn't matter how much further it goes because it's always on borrowed time. Eventually, it has to revert. It has Reversion to the mean is another principle in assets. And so even if it runs for a year or two from now, from this, from this recording, it doesn't matter. So now, um, before we, before we move on, so for the expectancy analysis, take, for example, someone wants to, cause a lot of the listeners are 
trying to build their businesses and they're kind of small startup solopreneurs. So how could someone apply expectancy analysis to building a business in any niche or any field um, just so that they can see that this principle translates over to whatever they're doing and not just in the financial world or in the real estate world? Oh, it absolutely does. So business entrepreneurship is one of three asset classes that you build wealth with, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the goal is to become financially independent, build your wealth and become financially independent. Would you agree? Yep. Yeah. So you've got three asset classes to work with. You've got business entrepreneurship, you've got real estate, and you've got uh, paper assets, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that type of thing. And so there's three asset classes you work with, and the principles are universally applicable. So to answer your question, going to business what happens is when you develop your business model, your business plan, you want to play for the big win while always managing risk so that when you're wrong and things go wrong, your losses remain small. And what that does is that tilts the payoff equation. Remember, it goes back to expectancy, which is probability times payoff. And so here's the reality, Chi. Anybody who's going to play the game, if you're going to go out, you're going to build a business, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to screw up. That's the way it goes, right? If you're if you're putting capital at risk and you're making decisions into an unknowable future, mistakes will occur. I make them all the time. Everybody does, yeah. right? None of us are immune. Yeah. And so you come down to two things to, to manage your expectancy in this situation. Since you can't control probability, right, you have some measure of control over it, more or less – you don't have full control over probability. You do have full control over the payoff side of the equation. And that turns out to be just enough. And so what you do is you always manage for big wins, always shoot for big wins, and then always manage tightly the losses. So the losses are small. What that does is that tilts the payoff half of the equation. So even if you have unfavorable probabilities, even if you fail regularly, you can still win big. So let's do a quick example. Let's say that you're a serial entrepreneur and you like to start businesses. But you're super, you, you totally understand expectancy analysis. So what you do is you start 10 businesses and the first nine fail, mm. right? Yep. But you're really smart about risk. You're really smart. You do minimum viable products. You test market everything. You, you go through and you carefully plan everything so you don't lose much when you fail. You fail nine times, the first nine times, and you lose $1,000 every time because that's how much you're risking on each business, maybe $1,000. Right, so you lose nine thousand, and then on the tenth one, you finally get it right, and on that tenth one, it makes hundreds of thousands, it makes millions of dollars. So basically, See now your payoff. Basically, your payoff what the equation, venture capitalists and PE guys do. Yeah, yeah. So what you're doing is you're tilting the payoff. You're consciously managing your operations to tilt your payoff equation. So that's how the game's played. Cool, and. Um, I, te I teach all of this. So what I do, Chi, is I teach all of this in – I have a course on my website. It's called Step 3, How to Design Your Life to Result in Wealth. Um, and so it's all about designing your wealth plan. It includes all three asset classes. So it goes through all that in a lot more in total detail. Okay. So, I mean, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is how did you transition into blogging and financial education and internet marketing? Because I see that a lot of this, I mean, this is almost in your DNA now. You know, you could probably close your <laughs> eyes and do a trade while you were sleeping. And if they wake you up and say, hey, trade on this, you'd probably be able to do it. But what were some of the pain points that made you decide, you know, you want to contribute to society on a larger scale by teaching and investing in people that you probably never meet in terms of teaching them, you know, how to think like you do? and plan yeah. their financial freedom. 
Yeah, one of the things I did was a deathbed analysis. And so I'll, I'll go through it. It's a tool I teach my clients. Um, so it's really useful for some people. Some people, it doesn't work for them, but other people, it's life-changing. Um, so when you're dealing with a tough question, I find it valuable to look back at this point in time from your deathbed, right? So let's say I, you know, I've been floundering around after the hedge fund days. I'm trying to go back in the time and maybe I'm, you know, uh, 38 years old or something. Um, and, and I'm trying to decide what am I going to do with my life, right? I don't want the hedge fund to be the last great thing I ever do with my life. I'm 38. I got a whole life ahead of me. I got stuff to do. Um, what is it I'm going to do with my time, right? I'm trying to set the stage here. So what I do is I fast forward into my deathbed. So I imagine I'm 95 years old and people can go along with me right now if they want just kind of close your eyes as long as you're not driving. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just kind of, um, imagine you're 95 years old, you're laying on your deathbed and you're, you're totally decrepit. Your body's withered away, but you're given the gift that your mind is crystal clear. You have full memory of your entire lifespan with great detail. This is a wonderful gift for your deathbed, but you will be dead in three days. It's an absolute fact. Your body's withering, time is ticking, and you will be dead in three days. And you're looking back over your life. Most specifically, you're looking back over this time in your life right now and the difficult decisions you're facing. And so you start playing out those decisions and seeing how it feels from the perspective of your deathbed. So for me, it was if I build this business – and it completely fails. How do I feel? And it was like I was okay with it, right? And then I tried, well, if I don't build this business, if I don't build financial mentor, and I don't teach all this stuff that I spent, you know, all these years developing and it totally works and it's totally different from how most people teach this stuff, right? Yeah. Completely different from conventional financial advice. If I don't share that with the world, if I don't figure out a way to help people with it, if I just go to my deathbed with it stored away and I was the only one that used it. How do I feel? And I felt really lousy. My life was incomplete, right? Yeah. And then I tried, if I build it and it succeeds, how do I feel? And it was wonderful. It was really a big, warm, fuzzy, right? And so that's what drives me is I knew that if I, if I died and I didn't give everything I could to get this out, and I know it sounds almost cheesy, right? In a recording, it sounds cheesy. But I mean, this is literally what I did, right? And it's literally what drives me is, I have to get it out of me. I have to put it in a final form that people can benefit from um, and give it back. It, it helped me so much. It changed my life. It changed my family's life, this knowledge. And so I'm giving it back and I'm creating a viable business out of it at the same time. Nice. But a lot of people have the limiting belief that they are not credible enough. They are not expert enough. They don't have the credentials or they have excuses. They have too many things to do. Taking care of their family, have to pay bills and job jobs that they don't have the time to invest in acquiring this knowledge and actually implementing the plan to get themselves out of either working a nine to five for the rest of their lives or just being stuck in a cycle of debt and um, debt not debt <laughs> and, <laughs> and all that so what what would you tell people like that who who don't believe or who don't have the courage to to try and take action to implement some of these things that you've talked about. Yeah, I have a <clears throat> I have a quote on my a couple quotes that I'll share that are on my screen to help me with this because everybody shares it, right? It's yeah. just you know everybody has imposter syndrome. So one of them is, um, and I'm going to butcher them up, but it's uh, the, okay. it, this was an honest quote. It's something like the forest would be 
a very boring place if only the best birds sang. Right? Like, who are we to judge what's the best bird, right? If all the birds sing, it creates a beautiful melody in the forest, right? So you've got to contribute your song is kind of my interpretation of it. Another one in there was by um, uh, Andy, Andy Warhol, which we'll remember. He was you know, a famous artist in the 60s, uh, kind of known for a very specific type of art that received a lot of criticism. And he had a great quote. It said, I for, oh, I'm going to butcher it up now. It's a, but anyway, you can look it up under Andy Warhol quotes. But it's something like, don't judge, don't, don't worry about criticism, judge it by the column inches. In other words, like, if they're writing about you, then you probably are doing something important because if you merited criticism in the first place, right? Like, the, the ultimate insult is to be ignored, <laughs> Right. <laughs> If you're criticized, it's actually almost a compliment in disguise because at least you merited the criticism. You're worthy of the criticism. You know, you're substantial enough that it merited being criticized. Uh, finally, I'll give you one more angle on it, which is what I did. You know, I was, I was very concerned. I was like, you know, why do I need to do this? You know, my stuff is so unusual and my viewpoints are so different that, you know, it's going to attract public criticism and all this. And so I was real worried about it. And I thought, I don't need it. I don't want to do it. And I finally moved forward with it, and the what I gave myself was permission to stop if it ever became uncomfortable, if it ever got ugly, right, to where there was a lot of public criticism. And it's never occurred. As a matter of fact, the opposite has occurred. Um, people are really rallying behind the message. It's changing people's lives. Uh, every week I get notes from people that say like, hey, you never heard from me. I never buying from you. I just did this off your free, your free content on your website. I learned all this stuff. I implemented it, and this is how it changed my life. Um, I get emails like that every week. Um, that's really rewarding. There are what I'll call trolls out there. Um, but I have kind of a rule that helps me deal with it, which is, you know, 95 to 98% of the people out there are really good. You know, they're good people, they great values. They're trying to do their level best in the world. Mm -hmm. Everybody makes mistakes, but people are good. And there's two to 5% that are real crap. And so, you know, they're just troubled souls. They've got serious issues, whatever it is. They're just messed up. And so don't run your life off the 2 to 5%, mm. okay? Work for the 95% that really matter and let the 2 to 5% go. They're there. They will be vocal. They will cause you pain. Let it go. Vocal minority. Nice. And um, so what are some of the biggest challenges people make when they're trying to become financially independent or independently wealthy well there there's sets of challenges which in the course structure i created so what i did was you know i used to coach people one-on-one -on -one, right because i the whole idea was i was trying to figure out could i actually help people and i don't accept one-on-one -on -one clients anymore but i used to i did it for uh there was too much demand it just okay. i started to burn out i mean i was getting booked solid and I kept raising rates. I never wanted to become a thousand dollar an hour coach. I, okay. you know, it was never the plan to try to get rich coaching. It was, I was trying to, the whole goal was to try to work out a process or a model that could actually help people. And I did do that. Mm. And that ultimately is becoming the seven steps to seven figures process, which is what I'm building out now. So like the course I'm, so the idea is to put Todd in a box, right? Okay. Take my knowledge, put it in a box. Yourself. Yeah, productize myself and put it in a system that people can map into at a much lower cost than one-on-one -on -one coaching. And and so like the first one, I already mentioned it in this interview, was the, the first one I'm building out is the step three course, which is how to design your wealth plan. 
And that course is the only one that's publicly available now. But there's actually seven of them. And each one is a different pain point in the process. That's why I brought it up now. You asked me that question about what are the pain points in the process. Okay. Um, there's let's, really yeah, seven from, distinct from this, steps. Let's, let's go through all the seven steps. All right. So the first one, step one, you're going to see them. They're paired together according to personal and financial because building wealth is as much a personal experience as a financial experience as you well know, right? Because you're talking about pain points for humans trying to do their business. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the big learnings I had to get in order to get this to really work well for everybody. And so step one is uh, financial foundation, right? So it's all the traditional financial planning stuff. And then there's some more stuff in there too. So it's all the basics that you read about everywhere else is all in one single course, step one. Um, and that's getting your financial house in order, right? Getting your foundation in order. Step two is your personal foundation, right? So you match personal foundation with financial foundation. And step two, I call habitudes of the wealthy. So it's habits and attitudes. And so your personal foundation is really your habits and attitudes that govern your daily actions. Because literally you can compound your way, the easiest way to compound your way to wealth is through shaping, consciously shaping your habits and your attitudes to result in success. Okay. And there's specific habits and attitudes that take you to success. And there's specific habits and attitudes that take you away from success. And where I ran into this is when I first started coaching, I had both clients that were trying to get out of debt. So they had debt problems. And I had clients who were wealthy trying to take it to the next level. And I started noticing that the habits and attitudes that these two sets of clients had were diametrically opposite. Mm. And their financial results they were producing in life were the mere image of their habits and attitudes. It didn't go the other way around. The habits and attitudes were the cause. The financial results they were producing in life was the mirror. And so that's the personal side of the foundation. That's step two. Step three, as I said, is designing a wealth plan that actually work. And that's different from what most people think of as financial planning or wealth planning or investment plan. That's something you get from your broker, right? You go there and they stick stuff into a computer and they can you back a pretty little glossy brochure for you. Um, this is totally different. This is about how you design your life, how you actively pursue your life day to day, your action steps. It completely reverse engineers your entire wealth plan into daily, weekly, monthly, yearly action steps that you implement to produce the end result. It's just like a carefully engineered approach. You use all three asset classes, your business, uh, real estate, and paper assets. Mm -hmm. It takes the characteristics of each asset class that's unique to each asset class, and it connects them to your unique characteristics, the resources, the skills that you bring to the equation. And that's why it's unique is because it does that right inside the course. And so each person comes out with a wealth plan uniquely designed to their situation. There's no, it's not generic at all, and it's totally different from traditional financial planning. And then step four is now you have this wealth plan. What's the obvious next thing you do, right? You go out and take action on it. Yeah. Otherwise, what's it worth, right? It's only worth the papers written on unless you take action and produce the result. And so step four is about taking massive action, how you take massive action. And there's three separate approaches inside there. And then step five is probably the most in-demand course. That is ex what I call expectancy investing. We touched on a little bit of angles here when we talked about the expectancy math, you know, EV, um, mm -hmm. expected value that's and all that. And so, yeah. yeah, so that's applied to paper assets. And that's for people that are growing their wealth and uh, strategies, more advanced strategies for growing your wealth. Um, using paper assets, um, and I call that expectancy investing. It's a whole concept around uh, paper asset investing that I developed in my hedge fund days that I've translated over to a course. It's still what I use for my own money today. Step six is not uh, built yet. It's um, What happens is once you're financially independent, your goals change. Your investment goals change. 
uh, you need to, like I was talking about where I shifted over to real estate, that kind of thing. You, you, um, have different needs in terms of income from your assets as well as a prioritization for risk management. You're not so much trying to build your wealth as trying to preserve it net of inflation, cash flow it. And so step six is about investment strategies uh, unique to people in that position. And then step seven is now that I'm wealthy, so what? Right? And the idea is that you've done all this work to become a millionaire and really what you wanted all along was personal freedom, right? Mm -hmm. What happens is we – People in pursuit of financial freedom, and it's true for my, myself and it's true for my clients, we project, we project our goal of freedom onto, uh, is, which is an internal experience, onto something external to us called money. And whenever you, do, whenever you project an internal value onto an external thing as a goal, it will almost always set you up for disappointment. That's true with financial freedom as well. And so step seven is about how to bridge that, how to make sure that the freedom you create through finance actually results in the personal freedom you wanted all along. From what I've observed, a lot of people are stuck in the information gathering, reading, getting resources, downloading lead magnets from every blogger they see on the internet, and they're stuck in that cycle of just reading, 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 and not doing anything about what they read, not implementing, not taking action. So what are some two or three things or whatever you want to say, um, what are some things that someone can do to help push themselves into taking action? You just have to take the next, you, you have to figure out what the next logical step is. So first of all, what you're, what you're talking about, I, I put under a simple moniker of getting ready to get ready. Okay. Yeah. Right. People, people get in the get ready to get ready mode. Yeah. And, and the way you break out of that is you just have to figure out what is a next logical step that has reasonable risk management to it, right? Because you don't want to say like, oh, next logical step is I have to invest everything. And so you go invest everything and you lose it all, mm. right? You just want to take the next logical step with reasonable risk management behind it so you don't bet the farm, but you take an action step and then you learn from it. So, and then and then you're going to get feedback and you're going to learn things and then it's going to shape and you're going to take the next logical action step and the next logical action step. But you, you have to take action immediately and consistently or you produce no result, right? So there's a time for planning and for learning principles. I'm like, for, exa for example, when I I'm actually kind of a funny conundrum in this because like when I enter a new area or a new challenge, I will quickly digest several books on it and learn the basic principles and get, you know, kind of understand the field. But then at that point, I get into action. I take like the next logical action step. And then I continue to learn both from taking action as well as intellectual learning. But the key is you have to be taking action or you'll produce no result. Fantastic. Uh, and there's no point learning if you're not going to produce result, right? If the goal's worth having, the goal's worth working toward, right? It's either yeah. worth it or not. Yeah. So if it's worth learning about and it's worth pursuing, then you know you have to get past the intellectual pursuit. This was one of the things that was unique in my coaching. And I remember clients would often be surprised Almost from the first coaching call, I would take them into action and they'd be surprised. And I'd say, well, this is the obvious next logical step for you. Yeah. Right. And they'd be like, yeah, but what, you know, and I'd be like, that's okay. What, what happens is the biggest issues you face will be confronted, will come up and block you as soon as you take action. We can intellectualize your personal issues, you know, your, your obstacles to success, your limiting beliefs. We can intellectualize that stuff all day long, Right. 
and and we won't get nearly as far, nearly as fast as if we put you in action so you're producing results and we watch all the obstacles surface because the biggest, most important obstacles will surface fast, um, the, the quickest. And so we confront what's right in front of us. We deal with it. We take more action. We confront rights in front of us. Meanwhile, we're doing more planning, figuring it out, getting it more care. And, and so by the time we get two, three, four months down the road, people have made so much progress. They're like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing process. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a logical structure to it to produce a quick results. Oh, fantastic. All right, so as we start to wind down the show, I mean, I really wanted to go so deep, but <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. So let's start to transition, and then I'll link everything we've talked about in the show notes so that people can, if they want to follow up and learn more, they should go to financialmentor.com, which is a great domain name, by the way. How are you able to get that domain name? Uh, it's a long story. If you, I mean, I'll tell, I'll give you the, the the quick synopsis. I went to a marketing conference right after I sold the hedge fund in '98, and I heard one of the early pioneers of internet marketing. Just pure luck. This is pure luck okay. that I'm in in a marketing conference in Canada when one of the great pioneers of internet marketing, his name was Corey Rudel. He taught all the second generation of internet marketing pioneers, guys that you probably heard names of like Yannick Silver and okay. all these other guys, they learned from him. The only reason you don't know his name is because he had a passion for fast Porsches and he had the unfortunate instance of putting a Porsche in a wall at about 200 miles an hour. That oh, wow. um, ended his life abruptly. It wasn't even his fault. He was a passenger in the car at the time. Um, and so that's why you don't hear of him, but he was just this shining star, a brilliant young guy uh, you know, he, you couldn't, he couldn't, his mind was so fast that even though his mouth was moving a mile an hour, or I mean, mile, million miles an hour, it couldn't keep up with his thinking. Right. Mm. And I saw his first public presentation ever and I got it. Like I went, oh my gosh, like it was a crude presentation. It wasn't polished at all, but yet the message was so clear and I got the vision of exactly where he was coming from. And so I had that was a coincided with what I was telling you about having an interest in a financial education business. Like, what was I going to do with my life? Yeah, you know, I'm going, remember the deathbed exercise. Yeah, and so I went out and I got the URL was available. I wanted, I first I wanted to get financialcoach.com, right? Mm. And that wasn't available. Somebody had taken that, and so I started playing with other ones. I actually like financialmentor.com better. It has a warmer feel to it. It's more consistent with the business mm -hmm. than Coach, which is limited. Uh, it works because now the business is purely educational, so it's not just coaching. Um, but it's a funny story because uh, a major bank in New York actually owned the the intellectual property on that name, and I managed. I was told I couldn't use it after I'd already started building the business, and I managed to uh, get legal rights over it. So it's it's kind of an interesting story, a long drawn out story. Mm, wow. But but it, the point is, you had to go back to '98. I mean, back then. You know, if you did a search for financial coaches in 1998 when I started, the 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 search the search results would return nine nine results, right? Like it's multiple millions now, but back then it was nine results, of which eight of them were financial planners using the moniker of financial coach. I was the first financial coach on the internet. Oh wow, so interesting. Yeah, and now it's developed to this platform that has over a hundred thousand visitors every month, and I like the fact that you. Publish and well, it's bigger than that. Oh, it's, it's bigger, bigger than, than that. Yeah, it's two hundred thousand right now. Oh wow, two hundred thousand. Yeah. Those are uniques. That's not even page views or visits or anything. That's just 
unique visitors a month, over 200,000 a month. Wow, that's crazy. And growing. Because your your content is so in-depth and detailed that, and as much as you don't publish often, you can sit down for a good bit of time and just digest one blog post and get a lot out of it rather than what most people tend to do, which is just publish, 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 and it doesn't go into any real depth. It, it's kind of very shallow. So kudos, Yeah, it's a, I have a very different view on publishing. I'm really, you know, we talked about this before, like even my podcast, I only publish uh, podcast episodes sporadically. I'm really focused on quality. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to, you know, I've been putting out long copy posts that are full analysis of subjects with complete solutions uh, long before it was a popular thing to do. I mean, some of the some of the stuff on my site that I give away for free is the is the length of an ebook. I mean, I've got uh, ten and twelve thousand word posts up there. Who's an entrepreneur you admire, and why you admire that person? Well, boy, admiring him as an entrepreneur is one thing. Admiring him as a person is oh, another. Okay. Um, who, 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 who's your mentor? Uh, do I don't have to? one. Okay. I don't have one for you know. It depends on the subject. I look to different people, but if you ask me. Who I admired as an entrepreneur, I'd say Steve Jobs. Um, I've learned several things from him. Um, you know, like one thing that immediately came to mind was he had a no bozos policy. And, you know, no bozos meaning he had no toleration for bozos, people that put out poor quality work in his business. Okay. Um, and I feel that that's really smart. Um, it's just, it's so much easier to find somebody who cares as much as you do about quality and wants to work for the same goals as you do than it is to try to retrain people who have no sense of quality, um, and don't care about the customer and that type of thing. So I felt that that was a really smart policy. And I learned that from Steve. Um, you know, the fact that he built Apple from what it, from what it almost demised down to, you know, he built it from nothing and then it almost collapsed down and then he built it back up into an incredible company. Um, you know, you got to respect that. You got to respect that. Personal life issues, yeah, that's another discussion. But in terms of the drive, the creativity, and the clarity with which he brought to how he grew Apple, um, you have to respect that. And um, if you were to lose everything you had today and had to start all over again, what would you do differently? I would build a product first um, because I could build the list. And the following much quicker through things like affiliate marketing and advertising. Uh, Some of those weren't as prevalent back then when I started. Back when I started, you really had to have a platform. And I'm thankful for my platform now. Obviously, it gives me tremendous flexibility. It's a tremendously valuable asset. Uh Um, But the amount of work I put into building that platform, I could have had the whole product line build out by now and be doing much more good for more people and just approaching the business in a different strategy. So... You know, with perfect hindsight, I'd build the product first, but the product wouldn't be the same quality it is today because I wouldn't have the same experience base. So, tough question. Is there a particular activity that you do repeatedly in your business and in your life that you recommend everyone to do if they want to um, achieve success in whatever they're doing? Um, Well, one habit I have is I exercise every other day. Um, It gives me great mental clarity. I'm way more productive as a result of doing it. So, um, you know, my wife and I alternate exercise days so that, you know, she exercises one day, I get the kids out to school, you know, I exercise the next day, she gets the kids out to school, that kind of thing. Um, so that's a morning routine we have, which has proven very effective. Okay, I just sure. thought of another one. Sure. Um, you want to take a structure where you plan and then you 
execute and then you correct and adjust. So you've got to develop a plan for any goal you have based on proven principles, sound principles that'll work. And then once you have that plan, execute, just like we talked about earlier, get, get busy executing and then executing will teach you a lot, continue to learn and then correct and adjust your plan and take that three part formula and just roll it out everywhere you go. Ooh, I just lost my question. <laughs> let me think. Sorry, <laughs> I just right. thought of that. I thought that I thought that was a more useful answer than the uh, the exercise one. Although both are equally important for no, me. They're but good, they're... They're good. Um, so, um, um, can you share some words of wisdom for some recent grads? Okay, now I remember what I was going to ask you. Um, Somebody's stuck in a job right now, they hate what they do, and they're thinking of either starting a business, going out on their own, or just basically looking for something that they can start um, practicing and preparing for the life outside of work. Um, what are some words of advice you would share for the, that? Just, just do it. Just do it. Life's short. Step up to the plate. This isn't a trial run. You know, embrace the adventure of life. If there's things you want to do, do them. Um, don't get stuck. Okay. You know, control your costs so that you have the financial flexibility. And even if you don't, do it anyway. Um, you know, obviously, you always have to be responsible for your finances, right? So I'm not advocating going into debt. I'm not advocating doing anything stupid. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm saying be bold and embrace the adventure of life. Um, you know, you will die. And, and this is not a trial run. And so you get one round at it. So if you have passions, if you have things you want to do, go for it. Don't, don't, don't waste time. All right. And my final question, do you have any favorite books or audio programs that have helped you on your journey thus far and you think would be beneficial to the listeners out there? Um, when people ask me for a book, the one I usually recommend is, um, there's several, there's two good books that I, I like. I think you mentioned it earlier, coincidentally, one I usually recommend is War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Okay. I think that that, you know, addresses a concept of resistance with a capital R to deify it, which is we all deal with it. If we're trying to move our lives forward, we all confront resistance. It's just hardwired into our DNA and it's, you know, me included, it's just incredibly difficult. And so, you know, understand it, recognize it when it's occurring. Don't let its insidious nature overwhelm you and mess your life up. And so I think War of Art is a great book. I think another one is um, uh, Essentialism by McKeown, um, and I never pronounce his name right. Um, but that book is really good for you know our internet era where we have abundance in information and lack of abundance in time and all kinds of busyness with social media and all kinds of interruptions in our life. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he makes the valid point of really boiling down to what are the essential tasks you need to accomplish to reach the goal. And that's part of where I tie it in with the whole wealth planning idea is that you've got to really boil it down to the essential tasks that you must complete each day to move your life forward. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. And discipline is what I'm hearing from you. Persistence and discipline. I mean, there's such, you know, hallmark words that people throw around, but man, they're true. You know, I don't know. I don't know anybody that succeeds. that just does it out of the box, right? Everybody, you know, all, all instant successes, sudden successes are built on years of disciplined effort that led up to it. Nice. And with that said, we've come to the end of the show. Todd, I really appreciate you coming aboard to 
share your words of wisdom. It seems like one hour is just not enough to dig into everything that you have in your brain. Going back to when you were like 23, did you set out to become financially free at 35 in 12 years? You set that out from day one. Yeah, I didn't have a specified time of 12 years, but I, I just... I just looked at it, you know, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had to work like everybody else. And, you know, I went in debt when I was in school. I had to get out of debt when I came out of school. So you said I started with zero net worth. I actually started with a negative Negative. net worth because I had student loan debt. Um, And and so I just looked on it. It seemed obvious to me and it still seems obvious to this day. And I don't get why other people wouldn't do the same as as long as I have to lead an economic life, as long as I have to make money and spend money and allocate money and do the things I do with money, I may as well figure out how to make it result in financial independence, right? Because at least at the end of this process, I have freedom. You know, I have financial freedom, right? Yeah. And so I figured, well, let me go ahead and design my life to do it, which is, you know, again, what I teach in that step three course. But that's what I did with my own life right from the outset. I thought, okay, well, let me go learn about how people become financially independent. Let me design a plan for it. I did exactly what I shared in this call. Then I started acting on it and you know, that's why I went in the hedge fund business. I figured, well, you know, if I'm going to become financially independent, I have to become a master investor. And so if I'm going to become a master investor, I may as well get paid to learn it. And so I started working at a hedge fund. And, to get, and my job was to research all the investment methodologies to prove what did, worked and didn't work. You know, so it's just like this kind of methodical implementation of a plan, exactly like we talked about in here. And so, yeah, I had that goal. Um, it was an intentional goal to achieve it. And I did it in 12 years. So there you have it, guys. Be intentional in your goal setting because there's nothing like just being persistent, disciplined, and committed to achieving your goals and your dreams. So thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for telling your story. And everybody, if you want to learn more, please go to financialmentor.com and you can download all the wonderful content he has on there. Listen to all the podcasts. Like he said, they're very infrequent, but they're very, very action-packed with lots of wonderful nuggets of wisdom. So thank you for coming on the show, Todd, and I appreciate you. All right. Thank you, Chi. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.